man, I just want to sing the whole time. Uh, just forget about the preaching. Let's just continue to praise the Lord. He's, he's wonderful, isn't he? I know we just uh, prayed, but I would like to begin uh, just, you know, by, by committing this time to the Lord uh, one more time. So, so just uh, join with me and let's, let's uh, ask the Lord to bless our time. Father, I, I need you. I need you now. I need you every moment of every day, and I need you in this moment. I pray that you would empower me by your Holy Spirit to uh, communicate your truth and your way so that your name would be magnified. I ask, Father God, that you would help all of us to have open hearts and open minds to the truth of your scriptures, and I pray, Father, that you would shape us, that you would begin to mold us and begin to change us and transform us into the likeness of Jesus Christ. We desire you. We want to know you more. We want to walk with you and keep in step with your Holy Spirit day by day. We want to be godly men, Lord. Help us not to be passive. Help us not to be half-hearted. Help us not to have other gods and and worship those. But, Lord, I pray that we would worship you alone. So shape us, Lord Jesus. Make us into godly men who can lead uh, our families and lead our churches, and lead our cities for the sake of your great name. We love you, we need you now, and we commit this time into your care. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You know, my wife and I are pretty big movie buffs. Uh, A couple of years ago, we watched a, a movie called Stone of Destiny. Anybody ever seen that movie before? It's little known. Hardly anybody's ever, ever seen it. I, I talk to people about it. It came out in 2008. Um, it's based on some true events that took place in the year 1950 when there were three uh, Scottish college-age students, one, uh, three guys and one gal. They, they broke into Westminster Abbey to steal the historic Stone of Scone and return it to Scotland. Now, I had never heard of this stone of scone before, this stone of destiny before, um, and, and maybe that's a reflection on how poorly informed I am on world history. I, I don't know. But, but I had never heard about it, and, and uh, there, there are a number of legends surrounding this stone. So after watching the movie, I decided, hey, I want to look into this a little bit and find out more about it. So I, I got on Wikipedia. Here's what I found. So, you know, who knows how accurate this is based on the source. But apparently... Um, In Scottish history, kings would sit on this stone during their coronation. As they're being installed as the king, the the kings would would sit on the stone, and the stone was a symbol of Scottish culture. Um, It it carried some significant meaning to the people of Scotland. But in the year 1296, the stone was captured by England as a war trophy. And eventually it was brought back to England and in Westminster Abbey. And the stone was built into the seat of a wooden chair upon which most subsequent English kings were crowned. Take a look at this picture here on the screen. There's a picture of it. What a slap in the face. What a total slap in the face. In 1296, when the English defeated the Scottish in battle, they took with them one of Scotland's most prized national symbols, and then they used it to install each new English ruler who reigned not only over England, but also over Scotland as well. I mean, think about it. The king of England sat on it. He put his hind quarters on that stone, symbolically squashing their autonomy. 
And apparently about 30 years after they stole this stone, after it was taken as a war trophy, England made some sort of treaty with Scotland that they would return the stone. But some 600 years later went by and they still hadn't. They hung on to it. And so on Christmas Day in the year 1950, some college students decided we're going to take this into our own hands. It's fascinating, isn't it? 600 years later, and the people of of Scotland are are still smarting. They're still feeling the sting of losing the stone of destiny in battle. See, the truth is, losing a war trophy like that, it's very, very hard to forget. Very hard to forget. Yesterday in our time together, we looked at 1 Samuel chapter 4, where the people of Israel ill-advisedly brought the Ark of God's Covenant into battle against the Philistines. And they were under the impression that they could force God's hand if only they carried along this holy relic with them, the the Ark of the Covenant. They They thought that they could not lose in battle if they carried the Ark with them. But we saw that God so loves his people. And he so desires our holiness that he will allow us to misunderstand his intentions at times in order to bring us into a correct relationship with himself. And as we saw last night, why don't you kick this on the screen, Michael? Holiness is an inward transformation of the heart that only begins when we see God rightly. It begins with us seeing God rightly. And so God allowed the people of Israel to lose in battle. They got pounded. They got completely squashed, and at the end of the day, the Philistines carried off the greatest war trophy that the world has ever seen. They were carrying along with them the Ark of God's Covenant back into Philistine territory. And that's where we pick up our story in 1 Samuel chapter 5. Why don't you open there in your Bible, 1 Samuel chapter 5, we will pick up in verse 1. 1 Samuel 5. Verse 1. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. And then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. Now, now Dagon or Dagon was a Philistine god. In, in the past, there were a number of Bible scholars who thought that Dagon was a fish god. Now more scholars think maybe Dagon has something to do with grain or maybe a harvest god or something like that. It doesn't really matter. Uh, Either way, the idea is clear. The Philistines believe that Dagon was victorious over Yahweh in battle. See, they've taken the Ark of God's Covenant as this war trophy, and they've decided to set it up in Dagon's temple beside Dagon as though Yahweh was Dagon's assistant helper. That's what they're doing. So that's what's happening. But take a look. Let's keep going. Verse 3. It says, And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. Did you catch that? You catch what's going on here? The people wake up the next morning and they find their God face down in the dirt in front of the ark of God. His face is down on the ground in a posture of worship before the ark ironic how they believe that their God is so powerful that he can defeat the Israelites in battle, but he's not powerful enough to pick himself up off of the ground and make himself stand up again. He needs their help. 
gets even better, though. Take a look at verse 4. It says, But when they arose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of God, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. So, I mean, are you following me? I mean, this is crazy. They wake up the next morning, and here is their mighty God, Dagon. Bow down again, face in the dirt in front of Yahweh. Only this time he's decapitated. And this time his hands are cut off. Now, what's incredibly ironic here, this is so ironic, is that in the ancient world, severed hands and heads were considered battlefield trophies. You catch that? In a sense, God turns the table on the Philistines. They march home with the Ark of the Covenant in tow, excited about their shiny new trophy of war. And as a slap in the face to the Israelites, they stick the Ark of God in their temple where Yahweh can serve as Dagon's assistant. But within two days, their God is now face in the dirt, decapitated, suffering from the I've fallen, but I can't get up syndrome. Dagon's head is now one of Yahweh's trophies. Go to verse 6. Verse 6. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod. And he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand, his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. So they sent and gathered all of the lords of the Philistines and said, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they answered, let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. And so they brought the ark of God of Israel there. But after they brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumor, tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They brought, the, they brought the, the, around the ark of God of Israel to kill us and our people. And they sent, therefore, and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of God of the God of Israel, and let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. This whole episode is so ironic. This war trophy is bringing plagues everywhere that it goes. Nobody wants the ark anymore. At one time, they're all excited. Hey, we got the ark. We've got the ark. Great war trophy. Now, we don't want the ark. Don't bring it here. Whatever you do, send it somewhere else. Because they're starting to see something about the power and majesty of the God of Israel. Did you notice a couple of things being repeated here? This is very interesting. Look again at verse 6. It says, the hand of the Lord was heavy against his people. Verse 7, his hand is against us and against Dagon, our God. Verse 9, the hand of the Lord was against the city. Verse 11, the hand of God was very, very heavy there. See, God's hand is heavy when people are in sin. His hand is heavy. It's called conviction. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about because, because frankly, that's where you're at 
right now. And because of the heavy hand of God in verse 7, the Philistines said, it must not remain with us. Look again at verse 10. They sent the ark of God to Ekron. Verse 11 says, send the ark away. Doesn't it strike you as ironic that immediately after God breaks the hands off of the idol Dagon, that the Philistines feel the heavy hand of God against them. See, the message is clear. Dagon is powerless, but Yahweh has all power in his hands. Let that sink in. The God of the Bible is above all other gods. He will not share that place with anyone else. Not all gods are the same. And if you've been under the assumption that different religions just have different names for the same God or that all roads lead to the same God, you need to take another look at 1 Samuel chapter 5 because this chapter does not give us the luxury to accept pluralism or relativism. It doesn't allow us. The God of the Bible is unique. He is holy. He's holy. And I realize that this may be offensive to some of you because our culture says that it's intolerant to believe this. But the clear teaching of this passage is that there's no one like the Lord our God. No one. There's no other God like him as Acts chapter 4 verse 12 puts it. There is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus. There's no one else like him. Do you know it? No one is like Jesus Christ. And I realize that most people, most men at a, a, a church-sponsored men's retreat do know Jesus. But, but I realize that there may be some of you who are here this morning who are just kind of checking things out. And I want to tell you this morning that Jesus Christ came to save people like you. I don't know where you're at. I don't know where you're from. I don't know your backgrounds. I'm from Colorado, and so you'll never see me again. And so I, I don't know your story. But I know that Jesus came to save sinners Jesus came to save lost people. He went to the cross to pay for our sin, and he rose again to give us new life. And he calls us now to turn away from sin and turn to him for salvation and him alone for salvation. And if you don't know him this morning, if you don't know Jesus Christ, come to him today. Come to Jesus as your Savior. There's no other way to get to heaven. There's no other God that can save. There's no other name under heaven by which man might be saved. Jesus, he's the only one. He's the only one, and 1 Samuel 5 makes that so clear. Even more, this chapter shows us that the God of the Bible does not need our help. The God of the Bible doesn't need our help. You know, the Philistines have to pick up their God off of the ground and glue him back together. You know, Humpty Dumpty kind of a deal. That's what's taking place here in 1 Samuel 5. But the God of the Bible needs no help in getting the ark of God back into Israel. He's all-powerful. He can do that all by his lonesome. He doesn't need your help. He doesn't need mine. He's above all other gods, and he's more than capable to get his ark back into the territory of Israel. That's no problem for him. And the Philistines are beginning to feel the weight of this God's hand upon them. They're feeling the heavy hand of God. For a period of seven months, it says, something, perhaps bubonic plague, has spread in every city that the ark has come to. And by the time it reaches Ekron, the people from that city are saying, are you guys trying to kill us? What are you doing? We we don't want that thing. Don't bring that here. And so the Philistines decide, okay, we need to send it back. We need to get this thing out of our territory and get it back to Israel. But here's the question, how? How do we do that? How are we going to get this gold chest 
back to Israel without either get, without getting killed, either by handling the ark itself or by the Israelites when they drop it off. Let, let's just be clear. This isn't like they're returning a library book that's overdue. Okay, this is the ark of God's covenant. How are we going to get this thing back into Israel? It's a question for them that they don't know. And they've, start to, they've started to learn something that they're afraid, hey, we're, we're going to get killed in the process because this God of Israel, well, we're learning some things about him. First of all, he's holy. And secondly, he's not to be trifled with. He is holy. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 2, 1 Samuel 6, 2, they call together their priests. They call together their diviners and they ask, How do we go about getting rid of this thing? How do we get this thing out of our territory back into Israel? Let's take a look. 1 Samuel 6, beginning in verse 3. 1 Samuel 6, beginning in verse 3. They said, if you send away the ark of of the God of Israel, do not send it empty. But by all means, return him a guilt offering. And then you'll be healed. And it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, what is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? And they answered, five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the Lord lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravaged the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand. Perhaps a lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and departed? Let, let's, let's just call this what it is, guys. First Samuel chapters 5 and 6 are crazy, okay? They're weird. This is some interesting stuff. And if you're not smiling after reading this passage, it's because we're not getting everything yet. Now, a a word about these priests and diviners. These priests likely worked in the temple of Dagon, okay? The the diviners would kind of be like witch doctors or something like that. They they would be our equivalent of tarot card, uh, you know, or palm readers, that kind of a thing. And their advice in verse 3 is to send a guilt offering to the God of Israel. And in verse 5, they tell everyone, give glory to the God of Israel. Isn't that interesting? Doesn't that strike you as odd? Of all people, they're saying, hey, maybe we should glorify God. See, God was showing the Philistines something about himself, something about who he was. He is the only God. He is a holy God. But they don't repent. And they're still pretty confused about a number of things. Just look at the way that they hope to appease God. Like I said, they, they don't turn from their sin. Instead, they make images of rats and tumors and send them with the ark back into Israel. It's probably them trying to practice magic. That's probably what's taking place here. They're sending away the things that have been plaguing them. Oh, we've been having tumors and rats and mice and whatever. Let's send those away back into Israel. It's trying to practice magic, but it's completely backwards. I mean, first of all, God's not a big fan of images, okay? Rats were considered detestable, and they're giving God little gold statues of unclean tumors. Yuck. Yuck. Like, well, what is this, you know? I mean, you're trying to appease me with this, but that's what they're doing, okay? On top of that, we find out in verse 7 that they're going to put the ark in the back of a cart, which is forbidden in Numbers chapter 7. So the whole thing's a train wreck. 
The entire thing from beginning to end is all messed up, but they're trying to get this thing back into Israel. Now, the Philistines, however, aren't quite ready to give up this incredible token of war if they're not 100% sure that all of these plagues are, in fact, from God. And so they add in a little twist to make everything very interesting. They say, in verse 7, they say, you know what, let's hitch this cart up to two nursing cows. And the the instinct of these nursing cows would would be to make a U-turn the moment that they hear the cry of one of their calves. And so the Philistines reckon, well, listen, if these cows actually pull this cart straight into Israel, then it must have been God who brought this disaster upon us. But if the cows don't go straight back into Israel, then they figure it must just all be a coincidence and they get to keep their trophy of war, the Ark of the Covenant. Well, the cows go straight across the border into a small Israelite town called Beth Shemesh. Take a look. 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 13. 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 13. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted their eyes up and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The ark came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there. And they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and they set them upon a great stone. Okay. The ark comes into town. The glory has returned. They're excited. They're no longer Ichabod. They are they're so pumped. They're so excited that the Ark of, of the Covenant is back in Israel that they set it up on a stone for everybody to take a gander at it. Everybody gets to take a look. Hey, take a peek. The Ark is back, everybody. And they set it up on the stone. Okay? Now skip down to verse 19. Verse 19. And he, God, struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord? Who's able to stand before the Lord? This holy God. And to whom shall he go up away from us? And so they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. Verse, chapter 7, verse 1. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. Now, this is a bit confusing. The ark makes its way back into Israel, and the people of Beth Shemesh are all overjoyed at its return. They're excited. The ark of God's covenant has come back to us. And so they make a burnt offering to the Lord there, and they set the ark on a rock so that everybody can see it, so that everybody can take a look. And then in verse 19, God kills a bunch of them. Why? Why do all these people die? I mean, these are his people, and he wipes a bunch of them out. They're excited that the ark has come back. They're excited to see the ark. Well, why did God do this? Well, let me see if I can shed just a little bit of light on what's going on here. Beth Shemesh was one of the towns that had been given to the Levites. We see that in Joshua chapter 21. 
And in particular, it was given to the Kohathite clan. Now, that may not mean a whole lot unless we realize that the particular job of the Kohathites was to take care of the holy things in the tabernacle. And in particular, the Ark of the Covenant. Find all this in Numbers chapter 4. In other words, of all the places, of all the places where the Ark of the Covenant could have come to, this particular town should have been a place where the people knew exactly what to do. Of all the places it could have gone, this place was the place where they should have known how to handle the Ark of the Covenant. But but they, they didn't. And the Kohathites had been instructed in Numbers 4, don't look at the Ark. Don't look at the Ark. And certainly don't touch it so that you won't die. When transporting it, they were supposed to cover it with a goat skin and carry it with poles so as not to touch the Ark of God's Covenant. But here they are, and they're all gawking at it. They're all they're setting it up on a rock so everybody can take a peek. Everybody can get a good look at this thing that they totally disregard God's word. And so we see the severity of God here. Again, there's sin. And what we see is the heavy hand of God. Sin. Conviction and judgment. And what breaks my heart in this chapter is verse 20. Take a look there. It just breaks my heart because the people of Israel come so close to experiencing transformation. I mean, they get, they get really, really close, but then they just miss the whole thing. Look at verse 20 one more time. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, who's able to stand before the Lord this holy God? See, the Israelites begin to see it. They begin to see God for who he is. They begin to to see him rightly in that they were seeing that our God is holy. He's holy. That they, They start to see it, that the Israelites, so needing transformation, so desperate, so thirsty for a fresh encounter with God, begin to see him for who he is. As I said last night, holiness is an inward transformation of the heart that only begins when we see God rightly. And they're just starting to see it. They're just starting to see that he's perfect and that he is holy, that he is majestic, that he is glorious, that he is powerful and mighty, high and lifted up. Who can stand before the Lord? Who can stand before this holy, holy God? I mean, they're, they're right on track. Good question. And the answer is that no one can apart from Jesus. No one can No one can stand before a holy God by their own merits. It's only by the blood of Jesus, only by his cross that we're washed clean, only by what Jesus has accomplished for us that we can stand before a holy God. But what's sad is the conclusion that the Israelites come to here. Look again at verse 20. Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? You see... Once the people saw God as holy, their response was to send him away. They're just like the Philistines. Just like the Philistines in chapter 5. Their response to the heavy hand of God is not repentance. Their response to the heavy hand of God, their response to God's conviction is to get as far away from God as possible. That's their response. 
He's holy. Let's just get away. He's holy. Oh, I'm afraid of him. I I want to cower in, in shame and fear and run away from this holy God. And the truth is we do the very same thing all the time. We start to see God's holiness. We start to feel his conviction. And then we run away. We run away. And it's true that holiness is an inward transformation of the heart that only begins when we see God rightly, but we cannot stop there. Michael, hit the next slide for me. Heart transformation happens as we learn to respond to God's hand of conviction by turning to Jesus for forgiveness and cleansing. See, as 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, our God is at one and the same time both holy and forgiving. He's holy and he's merciful. He's majestic, but he wants to be near us. He wants us to draw near, wants us to be close, wants to be in relationship with us. And at first, when the ark pulled into town, the people of Beth Shemesh, they had forgotten about that first part. They had forgotten that God is holy. They forgot about his judgment. They, they forgot how, how high and exalted he is. They showed no respect for the ark, no awe in God's presence, no fear of disobeying God's word. But after a number of them lost their lives, after a number of them were struck down, the ones that were left, they forgot about the second part. They forgot that he is forgiving, that God does call us to reconciliation, that God does want to be near us, that he does call us to himself in repentance and in forgiveness so that we can be renewed and walk with him and close fellowship once again. But the people didn't want to hear that. They didn't want to hear that second part. And so instead, they they tragically just send the ark away. And you see, that's our tendency when we sin. It's just to get as far away from God as we possibly can. We're just like the people of Beth Shemesh. We're just like them. And it may be because we, we feel guilty or because we feel shame or we get mad of God at God because of the discipline in our lives. But, but oftentimes our mode of operation as we relate to God is to shrink away or get away or run away. Well, we send the ark away. See, all we see is his power, but we don't see his mercy. All we see is his judgment, but we don't see his grace. And so this passage in 1 Samuel chapter 6, it ends on kind of a sad note. Because as far as I can tell, the people of Beth Shemesh never did get to experience the forgiving, cleansing love of God. And men, many of us do the very same. You know about the heavy hand of God. You know it and so do I. You feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit when you've sinned, when you've rebelled against God, when you've done something that you know is wrong. But instead of repenting, instead of turning back to Jesus, back to God, we just try to get as far away from him as possible. And let me just say that does not work. It doesn't work. If you don't believe me, take it from a guy who knew what he's talking about. David wrote in Psalm verse Psalm chapter 32, he, he says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there's no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, for night and day your hand was, get this, heavy. 
My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Men, now is the time when he may be Let's just get really down to business. If you, let's just say you're addicted to porn. And what's worse, you're hiding it. You're hiding it. You've never confessed it to another guy. You've never asked for accountability. You're ashamed. You're kind of scared. And so you're running away from God. If that's where you're at, you need to repent. You need to turn and experience the cleansing of Jesus Christ once again in your life. You need to turn. Not, don't run away. Don't shrink away. You need to turn. Do you, do you see that? Let's, let's say this. You're married. But there's a cute gal at work and you're flirting with her. You're flirting with someone who's not your wife. You It is a sin against a holy God. It dishonors God. It dishonors your wife, and it dishonors a, a holy God to whom you made a covenant before when you married that woman. You need to turn. Let's say this. Let's say you're you're conducting business in a way that you know dishonors God. I know many of you are businessmen of some sort. If you're conducting business, if you're doing your work in a way that does not honor God, that is an offense against a holy God, and you need to repent. Repent. Maybe you're failing to disciple your own kids. Repent. Maybe you're chasing the American dream instead of the kingdom of God. Repent. Maybe it's something else. I don't know what it may be. Maybe maybe you've made money your idol. Repent. Maybe you're you're just not paying attention to the to the things that God has called you to, and you've you're spending your time hanging out with the guys or doing what you need to repent. I don't know what it is. I don't know what God is telling you. I don't know what the heavy hand of God is is convicting you of. But whatever it may be, we need to come on, guys. I mean, we can never pursue holiness apart from repentance and knowing Jesus, experiencing his cleansing. We need to. Come on, men. When will we do it? Today we'll do it. Today, right now we'll do it. Why? Because we serve a a holy God. We serve a holy God, King of kings, Lord of reigns on high and we must repent we can't say no for way anymore we can't keep skulking around in the shadows can't keep going back to the same sin over and over and over don't run away from it man up and own it you've got three fantastic pastors I'm so blessed to know these three guys, Chris and Brandon and Jay, they are godly men. They love you and they love these churches and they desire to see 
you all become the men that God has called you to become. You know, if, if you're struggling with something, if you haven't confessed something, you've got some sin that's, that's hidden and, and you haven't ever told anybody else about it, you, you need to get with one of your pastors today, after, right after we get done here. You need to get with one of them. They're going to come up and you need to come forward and talk to them. You just need to confess and you need to, come on guys, repent. You need to repent. If there's anything that's hidden in your heart, any sin that you know dishonors Jesus Christ, then you need to talk to another brother. Maybe it's an accountability partner that you have, and you've been lying to them. You need to tell them and fess up today if they're here. Grab a buddy, grab a friend, and say, Brother, I need your prayer because I've been lying to you. And we need to offer mercy and grace to those that confess. You understand? Because what they're doing is they're repenting. Instead of shrinking away in shame, instead of sending the ark of God away, they're turning again to Jesus Christ for forgiveness and cleansing. That's the only way to transformation. There is no other way. You know, transformation will never come when we run away from God. It only happens, only happens when we respond to the heavy hand of conviction by coming to Jesus once again, experiencing Jesus' forgiveness and his cleansing and seeking his face once again, renewing that, that relationship with Jesus Christ, that fellowship with him. Take an honest look at the pattern of your own heart, of your own life. After you sin, what do you normally do? What do you do after you sin? I mean, I mean how long does it take you to come to a place of repentance? How, how do you interact with other believers? Do you draw away from other believers? Do you start skipping church? Do you start skipping men's breakfasts? Do you start skipping gospel community or small group or whatever it is? You, you start missing accountability time? Oh, hey, I'm busy, Joe. Sorry, I can't come. Because you're in sin? Do you start to shrink away in shame? Do you send the ark of God away? Do you draw away from God because you're ashamed of, of your sinfulness and what you've done and you feel bad about it and feel convicted and feel the heavy hand of God? Is that your pattern in your life? Is that what you do? What about your devotional time? What happens to that? When you're supposed to be, you know, normally, hey, I'm going to spend time in the word and spend time in prayer, but I'm in sin and I'm feeling the heavy hand of God. I feel his conviction on my heart and on my life. I know that I'm disobeying him in this particular area or this particular thing. What happens to that time with God? I'm just going to listen to Christian radio on the way to work because I I don't have time because I'm really busy right now. Or, or, you know what, God knows my heart, and that's what matters anyway, right? He knows my heart. He knows what I'm, you know, I don't want to be legalistic about having to read the Bible today. Come on. So, you know, we don't want to, we're going to, I'm going to, instead of being legalistic, I'm very holy or, or covering up my sin with this veneer of religiosity so that I can shrink away from Jesus Christ and not turn back to him to experience his cleansing and forgiveness one more time in my own heart and my own life. See, the bottom line is that all of us, we're going to sin at some point. All of us do. And hopefully our sin will become less and less frequent. And hopefully we'll spend shorter and shorter amounts of time staying in that place. But my guess is every one of us in here, we're going to sin at some point. We're sinners by nature and by choice. But the question is, what are we going to do after we sin? What will we do after we sin? Are we going to hide from God like Adam and Eve did? I mean, as though that works, as though he doesn't know where we are. Hey, where are you, Adam? I mean, if you read that and you think God doesn't know, then we're misreading that text. He knows very well where Adam is, and he knows where you are. 
He knows exactly where you are. He knows if you're hiding from him. He knows if you're shrinking away. He knows if you're trying to disfellowship from other people so that you're not exposed to what's really going on. You don't want other people to see what's really inside of here, what's really going on in your heart and in your mind. I mean, what are we going to do? We're just going to avoid all of our Christian friends and avoid our church and avoid accountability because we did something that we know is wrong? Are we just going to do what the the Israelites did here and what the Philistines did before them? We're just going to send the ark away? You know, during the ministry of Jesus, there was a time when he went to a place called the Gerasenes. And there was a guy in the Gerasenes. He was so filled with demons that he just ran around like a total crazy guy. He had so many demons in him. He's he's naked. He's cutting himself, crying out, um, living amongst the tombs. So many demons inside of him. They said, let's just call the dude Legion. But then Legion met Jesus. And Jesus changed his life. And he was freed and he was renewed and he was transformed. But what's so interesting is that while Legion is meeting Jesus or whatever this guy's real name is, this guy meets Jesus And he's changed, but everyone else around him is fearful. And in Mark chapter 5, verse 17, after these these demons run into a, a herd of pigs and then fall off of a steep bank and die, the people, it says in Mark 5, 17, begged Jesus to depart from their region. Isn't that sad? The people begged Jesus, Jesus, please just go Just go away. I don't want to be in your presence. I don't want you to be close. See, they saw Jesus's power. They saw Jesus's holiness. And so they sent the ark away. Those are some of the saddest words in all of scripture. And here's the reason why. Jesus Christ is unquestionably holy and mighty and perfect, and he will discipline us when we sin. We will feel the the heavy hand of God's conviction on us when we sin. Yet, Jesus loved us so much that he came to earth to die on a cross to pay for the the sin that, that, that we've committed. And it makes no sense. Think about this. It makes no sense when we, because of our sin, send away the one who pay for who pay for our sin. That makes no sense. It makes no sense that because of our guilt, we would try to hide from the one who cleanses us from guilt. Yes, our God is holy. Yes, our God judges sin. And yes, he is far above us. He is, but he is also the source of all forgiveness. He calls us to be reconciled to himself. He longs to be near us. That's the good news of the gospel, man. So I don't know where you're at. I don't know what you're dealing with. I don't know what's in your heart, in your mind. I don't know what kind of sin that maybe God's hand of conviction is pointing out to you today. But wherever you're at, I just want to implore you, run to Jesus now. Run to Jesus, no matter where you're at, no matter what you've done, no matter how deep your sin, no matter how long you've been there. His love is deeper. His mercy is greater. His forgiveness runs farther. So run to Jesus right now. Run to Jesus this moment in your heart, in your affections. 
Turn from your sin. Turn from whatever it is. Repent from that and turn again to Jesus for forgiveness and cleansing. See, that's where transformation begins to take place. Run to Jesus, whether you're an old saint or whether you're a wicked sinner. Jesus is the source of reconciliation. Jesus is the source of mercy. He's the wellspring of forgiveness. He's the hope of the world. And as we found out today, he's also the only Savior. And as Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 tells us, we must throw off everything, everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And we must run, run with perseverance the race that's marked out before us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him went to the cross, despising its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I heard Tim Keller once say, you know, what was the joy set before him? What did Jesus not have when he went to the cross? Before going to the cross, what did Jesus not have? I mean, before he, he came to earth, and I mean, Jesus is, as we've been singing, he, he's God the Son. He's part of our triune God. So, Jesus had all riches, he had all glory, he had all majesty. He had myriads of angels worshiping him for eternity. He existed in perfect fellowship with the Father and the Holy Spirit for all of eternity past. What did Jesus not have? What was the joy set before him going into the cross? What did Jesus not have? You. 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 joy set before him, the reason he endured the cross was to buy you. And yet we run away. We sin, we feel his conviction, and we send the ark of God away. Get away from me, God. You're too holy. But transformation will never happen so long as we continue to act that way. And so I want to invite you today, let's begin this moment, this season, or, or whatever, or continue in our transforma- transformation and our growth towards Jesus, but let, let's just come now to Jesus. Come to him once again today and ask him to forgive us once again. Uh, uh, the pastors, Chris, Jay, um, Brandon are going to be up here, uh, and we're going we're gonna to sing some more, and, and as we do, if you need to do some business with God, I want to invite you, please come forward and confess that sin. Come on up, guys. Uh, come forward and, and do business with God. Do business with God. Maybe you just need to in the quiet of your pew, wherever you are, and you just need to, to confess some sin and turn to Jesus again. Then just do that. Just do that right now. Do that this morning. But maybe you need to talk to one of your pastors, and you just need some help, and you're saying, hey, I'm stuck in this. I'm addicted to porn. I don't know how to break free from this. I'm flirting with a gal at my work, and I, 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 I'm, I haven't been faithful in the way that I should be to my wife, and I need to confess that. If you need to do that, talk to your pastor. These guys love you. They care for you. They care for you, and they, they want to help you grow in Jesus. They want to see you be transformed. And so what you're going to get is not just a knock on the head and, and just get beat up by these guys, but these guys will say, Jesus loves you. Jesus can forgive the deepest sin, the darkest stain. Jesus can still wash you clean. See, do you see that? Do you see how great our God? Don't slap our God in the face by saying that your sin is deeper than his grace and mercy. It's not. 
We have a, you may be a great sinner, but we have a great Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we're just going to take some time to do business with Jesus this morning. If you want to come forward and pray with one of your pastors, or if you'd like to pray with me, I would be more than happy to pray with you. If you need to confess sin because you know you've been rebelling against God in some way and you need to repent, come talk to us. We want to talk to you. Whatever it may be, however God wants to deal with you and work with you this morning, please don't send the ark of God away. Please don't run away. You see his holiness, and please don't shrink away in shame, but instead return to Jesus again. Turn to him for forgiveness and cleansing. It's only in Jesus that that may be found. There's no other place. There's no other way. So let's not go home untransformed because we're harboring sin in our hearts. This whole weekend's about pursuing his holiness, being transformed by him. And that only happens as we learn what it is to really repent. What do you need to repent of right now? Whatever it is, don't wait another moment. Run to Jesus. Run to Jesus. Father God, I just pray that you would help all of us. Help me, Father, to run to you. Help me to run to Jesus Christ who went to the cross to pay for my sin that was so deep and so stained and so wicked and it is so shameful and I'm tempted to run away from you Father but I I don't want to I want to to lean into Jesus I want Jesus' mercy again on me I want want your grace one more time I I want your touch again Father I don't want to run away I don't want to be Ichabod where the glory is departed I don't want to be the, the person that starts to see your glory, in it, your glory and your holiness and then just says, get away from me. I can't handle that. But God, I want to run to you one more time again this morning. And I, I pray for all of us that all of us would do the same, that we would run to Jesus and experience his incredible mercy and his incredible love. And I pray if there's any man in here who's been unfaithful to his wife, he'd confess that. And I pray, Father, if there's any man who's been addicted to pornography, I pray that he would confess that today. If there's any man in here that has been doing business in a way that's just not honoring you and he knows it's not, I pray that he would confess that sin. I pray, Father God, that you would make us holy. Make us holy because you are holy. We ask him to.